Welcome to Research Uncensored, a podcast by Research FDI, your trusted investment attraction and business intelligence partner. Join me, Bruce Tackefman, and my co-host, Amber Hunter, as we bring you behind the scenes with economic development professionals around the world. We're going to find out the real stories behind the project wins and get to know some of the top players in the game today. We would like to thank the Next Move Group for sponsoring today's podcast. Next Move Group helps small to medium-sized companies, communities, and organizations create economic growth through executive searches that assist economic development organizations with hiring quality EDO professionals. They also provide site selection services to manufacturers, in addition to a suite of products designed to help organizations be successful. Welcome to another episode of Research Uncensored. Joined as always by my co-host, Amber Hunter. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Doing well. we got our old friend Scott Bryan coming on the program today. I know. I'm very excited. Scott is, you know, a pro in economic development consulting, and he's also really close friend to the, you know, Research FDI, has been for years. Um, I know you two have a great, great relationship, great partnership. So I think our listeners are really in for a treat to hear uh, some of his advice, uh, you know, for marketing, uh, you know, increasing uh, regionals, uh, regions competitive advantage. So I'm really excited to uh, to bring him on. Yeah, he started a new company called AIC, and he's going to tell us all about it. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Perfect. Let's dial him in. All right, let's welcome our next guest all the way from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Scott Bryan. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm pretty good, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So, Scotty, what have you been up to? How's your summer going? Summer's been good. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to say that. Managed to do a little getaway, you know, went out east and, you know, got myself into the bush and just took some time out, which was beautiful to do because prior to that, hadn't really taken uh, any days off or gone anywhere, as you know, with most people, same situation. So all in all, have my health and have these options to now at least travel a little bit more. So uh, it's been great. Yeah, I, don't, I can't even remember the last time I saw you in person. It must, I think it must have been IEDC 2019. I think uh, you really helped me out during that show. <laughs> that was unfortunate times, but good times. Bonding. We bonded, right? Yes, yes. Definitely good times. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your career, about your expertise. Of course, yeah. So, well, a little background on me and how I got here. I think I had a very untraditional path. I mean, I started about 20 years ago. Uh, working in the government, federal government, but didn't like the pace. And I had my little side hustles at the time. I was promoting events. I even had a shoe store for a little bit where I'd go up to New York, hustle prices on the side, bring them back to Canada before anybody had them. And then I even started a, a basketball magazine with some colleagues. In fact, it was the first national um, premier basketball publication in Canada when we started. So um, it got me a taste for the kind of startup culture. And then after that, you know, working uh, the government, I left, went private sector side, a bit more focused on IT, but eventually found my way into consulting and I was focused on the public sector. And then I slowly but surely started focusing on the economic development side. And here we are. All right. So speaking about startups, you recently started another one. AIC. So tell, tell us about your latest business and what you've been up yeah, to. Yeah. So Attract Investment Consulting. Uh, yeah, I seem to be starting up businesses every now and then, right? Uh, so basically focus on doing investment attraction strategies for my clients, as well as studies, because not everybody needs a full-blown strategy. Sometimes they just need a piece to plug in so they can go to market quicker 
or to inform their planning. But uh, in line with startups, as we're speaking about it, I also brought in a new offering to the market, which I hadn't done before, which is to now offer a service to expanding companies to help them with their market targeting. So I'm now supporting them with their expansion efforts and then their go-to-market. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Amber. You know, our listeners might not really understand what a great value add we have by getting you on here. You know the ins and outs of brand marketing for, you know, regional attractiveness. So I'm going to kind of take advantage of you being on this podcast and ask some questions that I think economic developers would probably pay you to request. So please bear with me. But I just have one question. Say an economic developer shows up in their region, it's their first day, and they have to look at it, you know, broad picture. What would be your first tips of, okay, where do you look? What do you prioritize to have what you have your region, but make it more attractive? Start telling that story about why your region matters and what that competitive advantage is. You know, well, look, Amber, it, it, it always depends. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this day one thing, because I think before anything, all economic developers, no matter how long they've been there, should start with a day one attitude so they don't overlook things that might be in front of their face. Right. We, it's easy for us to get bias once we've been in a role for too long and not look at things with a fresh perspective. That being said, with sort of the day one lens, I would do a, you know, look around at what are the assets in your region and really try to understand them. The physical assets, of course, the infrastructure, the industries and whatnot. But one of the biggest assets you're going to have, right, is your local companies. They're the ones that have been supporting the economy the most. And most companies expand intra-jurisdictionally. So within their region, they're expanding. I would say about 60, 70 percent, possibly upwards of the expansions happen from those companies. And when they're not expanding, that's also going to give you great insight to where there might be supply chain gaps, which you can fill possibly through foreign direct investment through FDI. So it's going to give you a great idea of what's in the region and what's missing. And knowing what's in the region is going to help you really articulate the value propositions and help you position and promote that to other companies abroad to to attract them. So if you're looking to develop your economy, of course, there's a lot of ways this can be done with economic gardening. But one of the biggest ways is to understand your local businesses how they're doing and also what they're struggling with so that you can meet those challenges head on and not get surprised by them when they're too late. But again, understand the assets that are there because you can also then I'd say B look to find ways to, you know, support partnerships and support innovation because there might be something that they're missing that you can bring in to help them on their journey. Very interesting. Now you said a term there, economic gardening. Can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit more what that, what that means and what it entails? Right, right. So with economic gardening, it's basically growing in your backyard, if so to speak. Essentially, uh, again, as I was referring to with uh, you know local companies, everything around what you need to do to provide the optimal environment for companies and the economy to grow. So it can't. It can be focused from everything from uh, incentives to services that you're going to provide um, to help it be an environment that allow companies to understand how they can grow, what services they can tap into, but also position the assets for them to take advantage of and also just make sure there's less roadblocks in the way. So literally think of it kind of like as a garden that you'd want to grow. Well, what do you need to do? You got to make sure that soil is fertile. What's fertile soil in the sense of you know, uh, industry while well, it's having perhaps a, a low tax base or ensuring that certain services are available in certain sectors that are required because not all sectors are equal, things of that nature. Absolutely. So, you know, you've talked about kind of how to invest your time to grow the economy in, in, in a broad sense, but what would be your key recommendations? What do you sort of tell your clients to prioritize, you know, if they want to start really uh, at, at the outset, beginning to invest their time to, to have, you know, immediate growth? 
Right, right. So kind of going back to the economic gardening thing, again, a big focus here is on, you know, local businesses, especially on entrepreneurship. So, for example, one way is, you know, innovation, because innovation is going to also help create jobs, but also pull other companies in. It's going to create that stickiness. So that's one way. Um, B, another thing is really trying to understand what are the challenges that are within your realm that you can affect and what are the ones you're just going to have to learn to work around. And that might sound not sound like something that's really a, a major factor to grow in the economy, but it's absolutely massive because you could spend a lot of time spinning your wheels on some policy that you're not going to change versus finding a workaround. So how you can go about bringing in companies or helping companies grow, you know, regardless of whether this policy shifts or not if that makes sense. Now, Scott, as the pandemic kind of reaches the point of, of becoming an endemic, uh, do you think the way we attract talent is going to shift from now on? If so, uh, what trends are you seeing or what will predict in attracting workforce? Yeah, no, definitely. I think we're going to see massive shifts uh, with talent that we're already seeing, right? So, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit. And a lot of us do want to go back to the office, don't get me wrong, but quite a few of us have been enjoying kind of the part of pandemic life, which has given us more freedom, uh, more mobility, more flexibility, more time at home. So I do think this is going to be um, kind of a sticking point where companies will have to ensure that this is always going to be an option for their employees, with many firms already saying, look, just stay at home, work from home permanently, come into the office when you need or don't come in at all. And there's going to be cost savings with that too, bro, as well, right? So I think that will stick. But also what I think we're going to see is companies betting on and investing in their remote workers. So what I mean by that is you're probably going to see more um, perks, benefits, and employer contributions that are specific to the remote workers. And also, because people are working remotely and just the nature of the whole startup ecosystem, which has been on absolute fire with the most amount of VC funding, et cetera, et cetera, there's been no better time than ever to start up a business or access capital. And why that is relevant is that now employers are not just challenged by a potential similar company picking off one of their employees or some of their talent. They also have to keep in mind that it's potentially the fact that an employee might go and start their own business, possibly in a completely different sector. So you might even lose them for good because you won't be able to contract with them because, again, it's so much more viable nowadays to do that. And we saw a plethora of business startups during the pandemic. Some were forced, some were desperate, but a lot of them were also legit. So this is kind of a new realm we're entering to that we didn't really see before. It was there, but not to this magnitude. Now, what we also saw during the pandemic was a migration from big cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco to more rural communities, rural areas and uh, kind of uh, tier two, tier three cities. Now, it would seem that rural regions have something to gain uh, post pandemic. Uh, can you expand on this? And what do you what do you really feel the opportunity for rural communities is uh, as we move forward? Yeah, again, sort of in line with a bit of my last comments, I think the rural communities have a massive advantage because what we saw was people moving out to the rural areas to take advantage of housing prices, right? They can go to places where normally, you know, in the urban city, in the urban centers, in the cities, they're renting, but if they go out to rural areas, they're more likely to be able to afford a home. So now they can get into property ownership, home ownership, and have an asset with equity. In addition to that, they get the quality of life, you know, pandemic forced a huge focus on healthcare. And with us staying at home so much, it elevated the importance of quality of life, but also broadened the criteria and parameters of what quality life meant. So for example, when you're at home, 
you know, more hours out of the day, you're able to do more things, whether it's taking care of your kids or getting that extra grocery stunt, uh, run in or going to an appointment without having to shave so much time off your day because you're just coming back home. Not to mention you're totally abolishing the commute time. So you're getting all that time back in your day that you can do something productive with. So that's major. Um, I also think that with the rural areas, they're generally more aligned naturally to sustainability and there's less pollution. So for example, if you're looking to have your own renewable energy source, sure, you can put a solar panel in the city somewhere. You have better odds of getting higher solar radiation uh, in the countryside. Plus, you might be able to tap in some other solar sources, especially if you're coastal. So there's that. And of course, you know, it's more pet friendly environments. And on top of that, I think one of the things that have prevented people from moving out to the rural areas was technology and lack of it. But with the pandemic, we saw a drastic uh, acceleration of technology adoption. So a lot of the gaps have been closed so that you won't need to go to the urban areas as much. And what I think we're going to see is that in the future, probably closer than we think, we're going to see a lot more satellite services and satellite hubs, if you will. Things you'd normally need to go into the city for will now be available in rural areas, maybe not in the core of the rural area, but nearby so that multiple regions can go to it and access it so they don't have to go, for example, downtown or drive that extra hour. Again, following the migration of people to rural areas, the businesses will follow suit because there'll be money to be made to provide that convenience. Absolutely. Great points. One thing we haven't done in the last year and a half, as you mentioned earlier on, is we have not traveled. So we've been home for the last 18 months. It's the week of July 5th, 2021 here. And uh, and basically, uh, the Canadian government uh, basically rolled back some coronavirus travel restrictions. So now uh, vaccinated travelers could could travel internationally and not have to quarantine on the way back. Uh, what do you foresee for your own travel schedule? Do you see yourself going back on the road? And what do you, in terms of companies, what do you think is going to happen with trade show and uh, business travel uh, coming up in Canada and the U.S.? (laughs) So I see you're a betting man, Bruce, uh, because this is really just a gamble. I I would say for myself, look, I'm following protocols. So for me, it's, you know, when is our federal government saying it's safe? And also, when will I have the least amount of time to self-isolate or quarantine? I'm not really interested in going away for two, three days of travel and coming back to two weeks of quarantine, right? Especially at the pricing if I have to be stuck in a hotel, even though they're waiving that, they're saying now based on you know, you know negative tests and whatnot. But um, I am interested in traveling again. I'm not in a rush, but I do have clients asking for it. So the direct answer to your question is I will probably be back on the road in the fall because of conferences coming up and clients asking me to come down and, and meet with them and speak at uh, you know, seminars or conferences. So I think that's going to happen. And I'm also looking at everything in the U.S. with certain states being a little bit more open than others and having a bit more normalcy than we're seeing here in Canada. I think that's going to affect us and help you know push for people to get the act together and you know straighten things out so i mean it's it's all gonna depend on what hits us because not to be alarmist but you know you guys have been seeing this delta variant that's been coming up and it's quite scary and how easily it's passed on and the effects it can have so if this gets squashed quickly then you know i think things will be looking pretty good in the fall if it doesn't we might have a fourth wave 
maybe won't be as bad as the third, but it'll be something to consider and it will have an impact on, on, on travel. But uh, if I'm looking a bit more globally, there's some good indicators that travel is going to start picking up very soon. I mean, number one, Pearson Airport in Toronto has been packed. Number two, I'm seeing some regions that are now providing specific options to make it interesting for investors to get residency and be able to travel out there to their regions and also be invested at the same time, which they weren't previously offering. So they're trying to increase tourism, but also trying to increase uh, investment. And one recent example I'm speaking to you about is in uh, Tanzania. They recently launched this perhaps maybe a month ago, maybe a little bit more. But now they're basically offering kind of a, an investor visa, so to speak, which they didn't have before. Yeah, looking south of the border, you're kind of seeing uh, trade shows coming back. You see uh, NBA planned in, in the U.S. Uh, we saw the MRO show happened a few months ago without incident. So we're seeing kind of business as usual, uh, kind of in the U.S. with domestic travel pretty open. And it looks like um, the EU is going to open up more travel. So it should be an interesting time. But like you mentioned, with, with some caution, you know, with the Delta variant, uh, Lambda variant, who knows what other variants they're going to find. But um, it's gonna, it's out there. So we got to be cautious. But uh, like you, we're excited to get back, get back on the road. We're hoping, Amber and I are hoping to go to SCDC in Tampa and uh, we're also hoping to go to IEDC Nashville, but again, it all depends on uh, travel restrictions. Fingers crossed. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, fingers crossed. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I actually have one more question for you, Scott, because I know that you do a lot of work when you're building up these value propositions and, and you really help, you know, your clients build out stakeholder engagements. And I'm wondering now, would you kind of advise or do you think it's advisable that communities post-COVID should do a stakeholder engagement to kind of assess their back, you know, their back garden, their their businesses, their institutions, and see how COVID has affected them and where they're going to go from here. Because I'm seeing a lot of, of of people having that recommendation, but I'm wondering if it's something that should maybe be, you know, the best best practice moving forward. Mm. No, that's a very good question. It's it's kind of a bit of a chicken the egg because here's the thing: as you guys have seen yourselves, a lot of communities had surveyed and spoken with their local businesses at length. Right. So that's been done. They've been spoken to a lot. And I think part of the problem is not a lot of businesses are entirely satisfied with some of the reaction by these communities, because at first what I was hearing was that basically it was all out fire and IPAs, EDOs, cities, whatnot, were basically saying, let's help you get funding to get things back on track. Let's help you try to pivot to new sectors where it could be done. And that was obviously not the um, you know majority of businesses that were able to do that pivot. So. That has already happened. What can't happen now is to go back and ask the same questions. You have to ask new questions. You've got to look at progress and you've got to put things in a new context. So you might need to decide on specific industries or um, companies to approach and resurvey. It might not be all, but you definitely need to get that intelligence. Assumptions can't be made before you go back out to market because things are changing, right? So you need to get that pulse to understand what you're dealing with. But again, it's all about the context. So my direct answer to you, Amber, is yes. I do say that is a best practice, but not a blanket statement. Don't just go back to all the companies that A, you already spoke to and ask them the same questions. Try to go back to new companies. And for the companies that you know were not able to pivot or didn't take advantage of funding, go back to them and see what's happening now and what else can be done. But also very important to keep in mind those of which, you, the, you know, speaking for the clients now, you try to actually help. If you ask them questions where they're struggling or where they want to move to and then you did nothing, 
going back to them to pull them again is not really going to end up well for you. So they've got to be strategic on who they, they approach and, and in the context of, of why. But at the end of the day, that intelligence is needed to make an informed decision. You can't just make any assumptions. Absolutely. Well, you know, we want to thank you so much for your advice. And if our listeners, you know, wanted to reach out to, to see how they could maybe, you know, work with you to get some of this, this input as they build strategies moving forward, how would they go about contacting you and learning a little bit more about your company? They can just reach out to you at Bruce. With that aside, <laughs> that aside, uh, you can reach me at attractinvestment.ca. There's a you know, an email box on the contact page, but also at scott.brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at attractinvestment.ca. And also, I'm always on LinkedIn, so you can get me on LinkedIn, obviously, linkedin.com slash in slash Scott Brian with a Y, because everybody's going to spell it wrong. I just assume that, and I'm probably going to get a couple people calling me Brian, so it happens. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. We really appreciate it, and uh, have a great day. All right, you guys as well. Great speaking with you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you all for tuning in. You can find us on the web at www.researchfdi.com, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at ResearchFDI. Tune in next week as we have another guest from the economic development world. 